Unemployed within months. Where next for those leaving the forces? I do hope politicians have actually considered this. We are now pushing out into Sydney Street a whole group of people who wouldn't want to be there. And what should we do to break the stalemate in Libya? The best thing to do now is go back to the United Nations and say, look, we're protecting uh, civilians as far as we can. We're starting to see a new phase opening up now. BFBS. Headlines. couldn't be much worse as British forces stepped up their role over Libya. Commanders in the army and navy were setting out how more than two and a half thousand personnel will lose their jobs this year. For the Navy in particular, it's a significant cut in manpower imposed after last year's Defence Review, a document published long before military action against Libya was ever a possibility. Our reporter James Hurst has been following the story through the week and he joins me now. Uh, James, give us the detail on this announcement. Well, in this first tranche of redundancies, there will be 1,000 from the Army, 1,600 from the Royal Navy. Now, given that the Navy is looking at 3,300 redundancies to make the reductions they need from the Defence Review, they're doing nearly half straight away, and it is because the Navy has already started decommissioning ships. The fields they've chosen broadly reflect that. It's mainly operational personnel rather than admin at this stage. Not necessarily those on board the ships that have gone or are going, but those types of people. It is worth stressing, as you mentioned, these are not new cuts. We knew they were coming, and as a result of that, Kim Richardson from the Naval Families Federation says there's mixed feelings about this. I think it's been a long time coming, so I think in some ways there's a sense of relief that... At last, we've got a feel for the first stage or the first tranche of of what it's going to mean to people. So, James, how many people have the possibility of redundancy hanging over them in the Navy? Well, the pool of eligible people is about 5,600. For them, it is now make-your-mind-up time whether they want to uh, put themselves forward as volunteers, but it remains a compulsory scheme. Now, in September, there will be 1,600 redundancy notices issued. Commodore Paul Bennett is the head of Navy Manning. That's broken down to about 120 officers, 
270 senior ratings and uh, 1,200 junior ratings. I, I have no idea how many volunteers we'll have and how many non-volunteers. Uh, of course, it's, uh, it's far better uh, to have volunteers because those are the people that have made a decision that they'd like to, uh, to start a, another career and we'll give them every opportunity to do that. Uh, but I'm sure we'll have uh, quite a lot of, uh, of people that will be non-volunteers. But equally, they will be helped through the resettlement process and given every opportunity to make a very successful second career, uh, albeit very disappointed they've had to leave the service under these circumstances. We know obviously the 30th of September is the date that they will be notified, um, which does mean that perhaps people who are in the MED presently on ships that are going to be decommissioned may possibly be in that field because they'll be probably home by then, not serving anywhere in conflict and and may be notified then. Well, 25% of the naval service is deployed in ships and submarines, uh, aircraft are deployed. Uh, Some of those in Afghanistan will specifically uh, know that they're excluded uh, and anyone else in uh, in conflict on the 3rd of September will also be excluded. But at the moment, uh, because of the dynamic nature of naval operations, ships uh, in the Mediterranean may go straight through to the Gulf and uh, and, and elsewhere in the world, it's impossible to say at the moment uh, which individual units will be excluded. But of course redundancy is about individuals uh, and it may be that some of the individuals on those units uh, eventually either volunteer or are made redundant redundant downstream but that's not of course until the 3rd of September. Commodore Paul Bennett talking to Julie Knox. Well James uh, let's look at the army. A thousand redundancies there. How much can you break that figure down? Uh, They're expecting around a quarter to be officers up to the rank of brigadier. They think about 50% will come from volunteers. There are in all 150 fields that have been selected. They encompass around 5,000 people possibly facing redundancy. It's difficult to clarify greatly on what those fields are because they're so wide-ranging, but some key principles. Nobody who served less than eight years will be made redundant. They're wanting to keep uh, the, the, the newly trained experience in. No people seen as being in key frontline roles are going to be made redundant. It means people like infantry, medical staff, intelligence, bomb and IED disposal experts. One exception to that, right through the brigade of Gurkhas, even frontline could face redundancy because that brigade is seen as overfilled since their length of service was extended from 15 to 22 years. If you give the broad figure some context, the army is expecting to make some 5,000 redundancies by 2015. So this is just 20% of that. They are going much slower than the Navy or RAF, and that's a point that Julie Knox put to the head of Army Manning, Brigadier Richard Nuji. Our overriding concern is to make sure that we are operationally effective in Afghanistan. Um, We are still fighting a very hard fight in Afghanistan, and our brave men and women are still fighting out there, and we need to maintain that. Um, And therefore, we are taking a slightly cautious approach to redundancy to start with, um, to make sure that actually we can maintain the focus on Afghanistan and operations in Afghanistan as much as possible. What about fields for redundancies and fields that are protected? There are many fields. There are 150 fields across the army, so, um, and we're not losing any single capability. Um, it, is, it is reductions across the army where there are surpluses um, and um, where there will be surpluses in 2015. Um, so um, we're taking small slices out of various parts of the army. However, we have excluded um, in this tranche um, all infantry soldiers, um, primarily because of the fight in Afghanistan, um, uh, all intelligence corps, all medical um, are excluded. Um, so we've tried to focus our redundancy on those areas that are not heavily committed to Afghanistan and those areas where we have surpluses at the moment. Of course, the notable exception to your exclusion of infantrymen is the Gurkha 
Brigade. We are um, planning at the moment to make about 150 Gurkhas redundant, but that's not just infantry, that's um, engineers, signalers and logistic Gurkhas as well, because they are represented in all those four areas. The, the Gurkhas have a surplus in their brigade at the moment. Um, their uh, promotion and their advancement is suffering because of that, and we want a vibrant and strong brigade of Gurkhas going into the future, and therefore uh, we are trying to alleviate some of that pressure um, by making some redundant. Do you expect that perhaps people may think this is a backlash against Gurkhas fighting for their right to be considered equal with the rest of the British Army and achieving that a couple of years ago? They um, are under British Terms of Service and British Terms of Service include the um, potential for being made redundant and so uh, that is relatively new for them, I accept. Um, but, but no, I would not say it's a backlash at all. Um, they have a surplus. Uh, we believe in a strong and vibrant Brigade of Gurkhas and we want that to be maintained and therefore we're having to do what's right. So that is tranche one of redundancies right across the three services announced. Of course, the uh, RAF announced theirs a month ago. Notices will be going out in September, but we could have three more of these tranches in the years ahead. All right, James Hurst, thank you very much. Well, to discuss the job cuts, I'm joined on the line from Westminster by the Evening Standards Defence correspondent Robert Fox. And with me in the studio is BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Christopher, were there any surprises in this week's announcements? No. Uh, basically we knew the ballpark figure last October from the defence review there are other things that are being cons- in, into consideration some of the things you could look at for example um, if you get rid of an aircraft carrier and its fixed wing capability then you've got a pretty close idea of how you're going to t- take people out of the services or in certain certain areas anyway because you get rid of an aircraft carrier you also sort of reduce the, 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 the need for certain sort of surface and subsurface ships the other thing with the army uh, let's just take one example the intelligence corps stays now why would the intelligence corps stays it seemed pretty obvious intelligence gathering interrogation training of ser- other servicemen's resistance to interrogation training for other services uh, linguists and most important, intelligence uh, analysis. So those sort of units have got to stay because you're going to need them whatever job you're doing, even if you're not at war. So it all seems to make sense. Uh, Robert Fox, do you think the right cuts are being made in the right areas when it comes to manpower? That's a very big question, and I agree with Chris. I mean, we knew about this from the Strategic Defence and Security Review of last October. I think if you want to wind it back, you will have to look at that. And I actually don't want to rush to judgment about this. I would want to see what happens this summer, and particularly in two theatres, of course Afghanistan, enormous commitment, and we know the Prime Minister wants to wind down the numerical uh, commitment there, certainly by the end of the year, give some notice of that. And of course, we're still a bit of a, 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 a magical mystery story over Libya. And I know we're going to be talking Lib- Libya later on. And the only thing, and they know about it, and they, they, they've discussed it, is the question of strategic surprise, whether there is enough elasticity in the system as things stand now to meet another contingency, another crisis which Mm. blows up, which will directly affect British interests. Elasticity, you mentioned, uh, but Christopher, what about experience? If the army is only keeping those with, is actually um, going to keep those with more than eight years service, the only ones that will be made redundant, isn't there a risk that although they may be saving more money, they might be uh, making costs in terms of experience? I'm not sure that's, I mean, it it seems to follow, I'm not sure it does. I mean, 
uh, over the past 25 years, I've watched sort of redundancies, people leaving, voluntary redundancies, everything. Uh, what the army is doing all the time is moving people on. The average person doesn't stay that long in the army. They don't do 20, 25 years uh, in, in, in the army. The other thing which the, uh, the, the services understand perfectly reasonably is come 2014, 2015, when Britain starts pulling out its combat role in Afghanistan, the services, especially the army, are saying to me, we think we may lose public support for the services on any grand scale. And we've got to plan for that. And we've, also, we've got to do things now that we might be forced to do later on. We do it on our own time. Now, Robert, we've been told only half of these redundancies will be compulsory, but that's still 1,300 people, many of whom won't want to go. It's going to be a difficult time, isn't it? I think it's a very difficult time, and it's a very difficult time for another reason. I completely follow what Chris is saying about public support, particularly when the army isn't visibly in a major combat role. One of the things that they're also whittling away at, and uh, I'm, just, I'm just sort of saying, hmm, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm quite worried about it, which is the cutback in uh, welfare support and particularly allowances. And if you're trying to get somebody through the gap, which Chris has rightly uh, remarked upon, uh, very few people, I mean, it's, it, the majority of British soldiers don't serve for much, for much longer than four or five years. But of course you want people to go through to become your sergeant majors or regimental sergeant majors and likewise uh, in, the, in the officer corps. Now, in that area, I think the allowance and support package for the family really does matter. It looked to me a little bit drastic as to what, they're, what, what, they're, uh, what they were, try, what, what were proposing. But of course, as Chris has already said, the other side to this, and we still don't know the full picture yet, is what they're going to do with the equipment programme, because that is the one that really needs to be gripped. They're driving down numbers in quite a reasonable way, in quite an expected way, but we've not got the full picture yet. Uh, Christopher, a point that was being made this week by someone who served in the army for, for 27 years was that um, a lot of the officers um, are so demoralised they'll actually be pl applying for um, voluntary redundancy. They may not get it because they're them, so good and they may leave anyway. A lot of them, a lot of them leave anyway. Just, just think, well, it doesn't matter which service you're in. Um, there is a natural progression which could take around about 18 years. At one point you realise you're not going any further. And that is when company commander level, let's say two and a half in, 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 in the Navy, squadron lead in, in the RAF, they start to move on. We know there are only a certain amount of jobs. There are ceilings all over the place in the progress of the, of the officer uh, section. It doesn't occur, for example, in uh, junior rates or senior rates in the Navy. That doesn't happen. That's why the officer uh, section is, is far more movable than any other part of the services. All right, Christopher Ree Lee, Robert Fox, stay with us. Sit Rep with Still to come this week, from the battlefields of Helmand to the royal wedding. There is very little time to prepare, so we're going to have to work extremely hard when we return from Afghanistan. It's nothing abnormal, but uh, we're going to have to do a lot of work. Well, one of the biggest changes facing the forces is the drawdown in Germany, and this week's announcement was being watched closely by personnel based there. Already, plans are in place to help people adapt to life outside the forces. Major Peter Francis is among those working on resettlement. Ultimately, you've got to look at what your individual circumstances are and look at you as an individual, and then I would, if it was me, I'd look at my own family circumstances, and, and that will drive pretty much your agenda. 
um, of what you're going to be able to offer, A, the labour market, what you're going to be able to offer your family. And I wouldn't just look at the United Kingdom, I'd look around the world. You know, we're highly employable people. And Rachel Fallows, who's with the Army Families Federation in Germany, says cuts there will have a huge impact. It can affect where you're living, it can affect where your children are going to school, it can affect your uh, spouse if she's working. You know, it could be that there's two people in the household, if not three, that are going to lose their job as a result of the redundancy. Well, our reporter, Carla Prater, is on the line from Germany. Uh, Carla, what's been the reaction there to this week's announcements? Well, it has been quite an uncertain time here in Germany, I guess. The announcements on Monday did cause quite a lot of concern. I mean, people here are almost getting used to this uncertainty now with all these sort of different elements going on at the drawdown and then the redundancies. But, I don't know, I mean, we're all getting used to it here. There was, there was a build-up for some time before the details were passed on to us. Many adjutants were called into their offices last Friday to check the criteria to get an idea of any of their soldiers were on the list for redundancy. And on the day itself, there were a number of briefings informing people how they'd be affected and offering pension advice. Um, the reality for people here where I'm based in Senelaga is that many are exempt. Um, the MOD did make it clear that personnel preparing for or who will be deployed or on operations on the day notices are issued will not be made redundant. And for 20 Brigade, where I am, that means they're safe as they're set to deploy on Herrick 15. Similarly, 7 Brigade, based up in Hona, they shouldn't be affected as they'll be finishing Herrick 14 or going through the rip at the time. So a large bulk of the forces here appear to be safe, but there are some who are affected. We've heard about the Gurkhas, they're at risk. And in Munster, they form part of C Company within One York, so their futures are a little less clear. And for those that are at risk, what kind of support is in place? Well, you heard earlier from Major Peter Francis, and he works at the resettlement office here in Paderborn. And after the announcements came out, the office was on hand to offer lots of advice about the next step, should a soldier choose to stay or be encouraged to leave. I think the main point he wanted to put across is that there is help available, for example, CV writing, job application help, training courses as well. And Suffer Forces Help have also said similar things. They're offering a range of free courses and support. And the Army Families Federation, as you heard, they're also offering advice. The redundancies are going to be top of their agenda at the Germany AFS conference that's being held mid-June. And, I mean, basically it's difficult. Of course, being overseas can make things more complicated. People here you know, would have to leave and find their own new home in the UK, new jobs, new schools. And if you're out in the forces and your partner is too, what happens next? It's, it's difficult times. But it is worth noting what, what Peter Francis said to me is that if you are out here, you can apply to spend your final six months in the UK to help with that job hunting process. And if you choose to stay in Germany too, that's also an option. All right, Carla Prater, thank you very much for your time today. We've already heard the Army's head of Manning say he's committed to a strong active brigade of Gurkhas. Yet while other infantry divisions have been exempted from this round of job cuts, the Gurkhas will lose around 150 soldiers from a total of 3,500. Armed Forces Minister Nick Harvey says better employment conditions means there are now simply too many Gurkhas. They are overmanned as against their requirements. They have now got a longer period of 15 years, has gone up to 22 years of service, but we've continued recruiting them in. The Gurkhas' treatments proved controversial in recent years and these job losses have again focused attention on the way Britain treats the brigade. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is still in the studio and Robert Fox, the defence correspondent for the Evening Standard, is on the line. Uh, Robert, what do you make of the explanation that better working conditions have made the brigade too big and too expensive? 
They are very expensive now, and uh, before, particularly when they were largely based in Hong Kong, uh, the Gurkhas, the Gurkha soldier, was as a unit, fighting unit, very effective, but much, much cheaper than his, uh, than his British equivalent, and that's what they're wrestling with. I'm just um, saying a bit of a hmm about this one. Uh, it is very strange to say that we're cutting 150 uh, infantry, Gurkha infantry, particularly at this time when we know that they have been fighting very well and extremely valuable, uh, with value added for various reasons, uh, in Afghanistan. Um, can I just say very quickly, I was there when the briefing was given to Vence Correspondents last year, and I, uh, last, last week, sorry, and when uh, Brigadier Nuji announced this, I wondered whether uh, somebody had actually talked to that briefing team about the good old-fashioned military concept of situational awareness. They hadn't a clue how this was going to pay, play with, you know, people who support Joanna Lumley, particularly, you know, Middle Britain, if I may say that, people who read The Telegraph and read The Daily, the Daily Mail. It does send a very funny signal. Uh, and Christopher, do you think there'll be another high-profile campaign against these job cuts then? I can't see why there would be, because I think that, I mean, Joanna Lumley did her thing for a different reason with the Gurkhas. We have to be realistic the United Kingdom is shrinking with its military capability. What we really need to know, and we probably won't properly know until maybe 2015, is what the future role of the British forces is going to be and what forces by 2020 they expect to have to fulfil those roles. And I think a lot of um, organisations, regiments, units like Gurkha, people are having to get used to the idea, uh, no more perhaps, I mean, perhaps even further reductions that we're getting here. But the nonsense that we heard from the minister uh, of, of uh, Nick Harvey, well, that's all part of the stylish incompetence that the defence ministry has, has displayed ever since last October. Your words, Christopher. Have we reached a stalemate in Libya? Three weeks on from the start of coalition military strikes, supporters and opponents of Colonel Gaddafi are still fighting over key strategic towns. While the no-fly zone has been imposed, NATO's action hasn't been enough for rebel forces to oust Gaddafi. Then again, the UN's remit doesn't include regime change, only the protection of civilians. Rear Admiral Chris Parry, who helped to plan two no-fly zones over Iraq, says this was always the inevitable outcome. Right at the start of the campaign um, I think uh, people should have thought about this. There was always going to be a next stage. I think the best thing to do now is go back to the United Nations and say look uh, we've put in place a very good uh, no-fly zone. Uh, we're protecting uh, civilians as far as we can but we're starting to see a new phase opening up now. Among the changes, claims and counterclaims on all sides about who and what those NATO airstrikes are targeting, with rebels saying they've again been hit. Uh, Robert Fox is still on the line. Uh, Robert and Christopher in the studio. Uh, Christopher, Libyan rebels say NATO's not doing enough to help them defeat Gaddafi officially, though we're not there to help the rebels win, are we? No, and Chris Parry is quite right. It's about time to go back and not necessarily get another UN resolution because you won't get one now, um, but it's certainly to, to review exactly what you intended to get. Um, there are a lot of operations still going on, air operations. On, on Monday, the NATO force now, this is minus the Americans who were doing 50% of the ground hits until recently. Um, NATO forces flew 137 uh, missions in, over, in and over uh, li uh, Libya. Uh, Tuesday, it was 186. Last night, I think the figure was about 198. That's a lot of coordinated missions. 
Mind you, they're hitting, hitting a lot of rusty dustbins as well as, uh, as things that the rebels would like them to be Not so hitting. much talked about that, is it? No, it's not so much talked. But the other part of it is that the rebels are badly organised. I mean, everybody understands that. And especially now, you, you get certain sort of almost theatre sort of distractions. Braga was covered by the, uh, by the Gaddafi forces uh, just yesterday. Braga supplies the oil and the gas for Benghazi. Everybody is on the back foot there. They're likely to say, you're not helping us there. We weren't signed up to go and do the air activity, the air war, for the rebels. That wasn't in the deal. But because 1973 resolution of the United Nations is always said to be now, but it was a, made the war legal, then people are not looking at that very closely. Well, earlier this week, the Prime Minister visited the base in southern Italy from which British planes are flying their missions over Libya. The MOD's confirmed more RAF jets will join ground attacks in the country. Elsewhere, three naval ships are setting off this week for a military exercise in the Mediterranean. The Royal Marines are involved too, but ministers say it's nothing to do with events in Libya. Our reporter, Tim Cooper, is in Plymouth, and I spoke to him a little earlier. The mission is an exercise called Operation Cougar Kate, and uh, what it is 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 testing the Royal Navy's ability to deploy uh, rapidly to places anywhere around the world where there's sea access, of course, and, and train for a number of missions. That could be bringing humanitarian aid or it could be amphibious assault. So they're using Albion as a key command platform for this. She's equipped with a contingent of Royal Marines from 40 Commando, along with her own hovercraft, I understand, landing craft, and four helicopters. They'll be uh, doing this in the Mediterranean to begin with before later on heading down uh, through the Suez Canal to the Indian Ocean to conduct more operations there. Albion's going out today. We saw her go at around 8.30 this morning. Emotional scenes, you can imagine, there uh, for families watching her go and she'll be joined by HMS Sutherland tomorrow and RFA Cardigan Bay as well in the next couple of days is setting out. Now the MOD says it's not linked to Libya. If that's true it's an odd coincidence isn't it? Yes and it's an interesting one this. They're very categoric in their uh, statement that this isn't related to Libya but that doesn't stop people wondering and asking questions as to why. Reasons for this are fairly obvious. It's going to the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is where Libya is. And secondly, this deployment has been brought forward, I understand. A number of the families talking to me this morning saying that it should have been sort of in another three or four weeks that these ships were going out but it has been brought forward at some short notice which has prompted people to say, well, isn't it just going out to the Med to be ready should uh, some form of assistance be needed in Libya? But as we know, the MOD say, no, that isn't the case. Tim Cooper in Plymouth. Uh, Robert Fox, a lot of the resources in use in Libya, such as HMS Cumberland, had been deemed surplus to requirements six months ago, but ministers insist there's no need to look again at the cuts made in the Defence Review. What's their logic? The logic is that this is just a blip. This is the kind of thing that we should have had contingency planning. We've got capacity to spare. But as I said earlier, it's going to be questionable if this thing drags on in Libya and it shows every sign of doing so and something else comes up. Pity about the poor old Type 22 class. Uh, I rather like them as a ship. I don't know what Chris um, thinks because they've got lots of space. They are quite expensive on manning, though. Wonderful yachts, Robert. Wonderful yachts. (laughs) And on that note, we'll leave it. Robert Fox, thank you very much.
There are just three weeks to go to the royal wedding and while preparations are well advanced, some military personnel face a real rush to get in place on time. BFBS has learned some of the Irish guards who will be on parade at the wedding will have just five days to prepare after their tour in Helmand. They've been training the Afghan National Army but they've also been chosen to form the Queen's Guard at the royal wedding. That means 24 hours on duty at St James's Palace, the Tower of London and Buckingham Palace. It's a tight time turnaround, but the Irish Guard's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Geeker, is sure they'll manage it. Well, we have a dual role, and uh, our dual role is to be excellent operational soldiers, but also to be first-class um, ceremonial soldiers as well. So this is part of our, our, our normal um, de- thread of life, if you like. There is very little time to prepare after we return from here, so we're going to have to work extremely hard when we return from Afghanistan in order to train ourselves up to an acceptable standard. Um, so it's nothing abnormal, but uh, we're going to have to do a lot of work. And despite the tough timetable, there's no shortage of volunteers. You don't join the Irish Guards if you're not a bit of a, an exhibitionist, so no better stage to go out and show yourself off. Drill, uh, again, it's, it's second nature to us. It's not something you, you forget, it's like riding a bike. From stepping off that plane to stepping into the forecourt, of uh, Buckingham Palace is seven days and in them seven days turn around there's obviously going to be a lot of rehearsals making sure again we know what job we're doing how to do it obviously we're all in the correct step and we're all doing the same thing at the same time Christopher from Helmand to Buckingham Palace quite a change but they're up to it aren't they oh yeah I mean don't forget they're not all coming back from Helmand and said okay where's the kit Uh, better start Uh, two things one before they ever go to something like Helmand, the first thing you do when you join the services, but certainly the, uh, any of the guards' uh, regiments, you go and do it, you do the marching stuff, OK? But also there's a big backup behind. Not everybody goes off to Helmand. And it's the big backup at behind that would be going through this. And when the guys come back... They just slot in, do they? They simply, simply, simply slot in. Mm. Um, presumably lots of volunteers, in fact too many for this kind of job. Well, uh, it's not so much that. I mean, it's, it's who's around and, and who's, who's capable. Available. Yeah, who's Who looks ar- presentable. I mean, you, you were talking about HMS Cumberland, yeah? Mm. Cumberland's supposed to be part of the, uh, the route liners. So, you know, these guys don't have the backup, but the Navy has the backup, and they can say, right, this is what you have to do, and this is where you stand, and this is where you stand with your rifle, etc. But volunteers? No, most of the volunteers, actually, are the ones that are trying to get uh, invitations to the wedding. Mm. Uh, we were talking a few weeks ago, or maybe even months, I don't know, uh, pr- about Prince William and what he might actually be wearing, because he is entitled to wear any of the three service uniforms, isn't he? What, what's your news from your man at Geeves and Hawks? Uh, Royal Air Force. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a funny old uniform, some might say, to wear when you consider all the others. I mean, going back as far as I can remember, have always worn, uh, oh, with the exception, I think, the Prince of Wales in 1860, whatever it was, have always worn naval uniforms. Um, but no, this guy is a, is a professional RAF officer. Uh, and so why not? Uh, wear, uh, the RAF would be pr- furious. Absolutely if furious. Didn't, yeah, and I'll tell you one thing he? that won't happen. When, he, when they stand on the balcony, do the kiss, and along comes the aircraft fly past, I bet there won't be a naval harrier in it. No, Christopher, good to see you. Thanks very much for your time. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories we've covered and anything else you think we should talk about. Sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
on DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS. 